Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today I'm joined by Dr. Nicole Lavoie. Nicole is the director of the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport and a senior lecturer in the School of Kinesiology at the University of Minnesota. In a previous life, she was also a head women's tennis coach and a member of a Division III NCAA tennis national championship team. She earned both her master's and PhD from the University of Minnesota. So that makes her in a very elite class, also known as a double gopher. A double gopher, yay! (laughs) Those are rare, rare birds, yes. She serves on boards like the board of directors for We Coach, for ESPNW. Uh, Is that like a college committee that puts together uh, content for ESPNW.com? It's more of just a college advisory group. Yep. Okay. All right. The Sports Advisory Network for the Women's Sports Foundation. I'm so sure she has about 10 million more. So she she might drop those in as we go along. Um, Her seminal research, and this is my word, not hers, but I'm going to use it, includes the annual Women in College Coaching Report Card, which is aimed at retaining and increasing the number of women in the coaching profession. And that's where we will start today. And we're doing this at the beginning of Women's History Month. So I think it's a really important opportunity to talk about where we are with women coaching college sports. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. It's a pleasure to talk to you about my line of inquiry. Absolutely. There's so much detail in this report and I will link to it in the podcast liner notes so people can actually check it out. But let's talk about some of the key issues that higher education leaders should take away from this report now in its eighth year. So let's start with why should college presidents and trustees worry about how many women coaches we have in college athletics? Well, I think that any leader in higher ed should be concerned about the gender diversity in any position, whether it be leadership, administration, faculty, and or coaches. Um, I think that Gender diversity in leadership positions and in athletics is reflects the culture of the institution. So looking at the trend lines over the last two decades or so in coaching opportunities for women in college athletics, trending in the right direction, trending in the wrong direction, what's your sense? Oh, wow. Well, Karen, uh, as you well know, uh, pre-Title IX, 90% of girls and women were coached by women. And that gradually declined and is currently stagnant at about 42% of women coaching women at the collegiate level. So while we've had record numbers of girls and women playing sports with sport capital, sport knowledge, sport passion, uh, we have fewer women entering the realm of coaching. So the trend line has really been paradoxical. lots of athletes and fewer coaches. So as a researcher, you look at those two lines that are going in opposite directions and it makes you sort of scratch your head. And we'll talk a little bit later about the pipeline and and what some of the problems are with the pipeline. But one of the things that I've noticed as as an athletics administrator is just the sheer size of athletic coaching staffs in D1 and how big they've gotten over the last 10 years. You know, we have titles like director of coaching, head coach, associate head coach, assistant coach or assistant coaches, director of operations, 
graduate assistants, and not to mention the various support staff positions like <laughs> athletic training, equipment and facilities, strength and nutrition, media communications, NCAA compliance, and psychologist. You would think there'd be a lot of opportunities for women to be hired in most of those roles. Give us your thoughts on that. Well, you're certainly correct in that the, the proliferation of positions in athletics has certainly grown. And what's interesting when we look at coaching staffs, it's not all coaching staffs. Some sports have giant coaching staffs, and I will be remiss if I don't call out football, but we don't track football in the women college coaching report card. But uh, basketball staffs tend to be very large, especially at power five institutions. Uh, track and field and, and swimming and diving typically have six coaches uh, across the board. And some sports like tennis and golf have one or two. So it really depends on the sport. But the idea that with the proliferation of positions that provides women more opportunity to be hired into these positions, uh, we just don't see that, to be honest. In fact, in our data in the Women College Coaching Report Card, the more lucrative, visible, and powerful the position becomes, the fewer women we see. And we have identified in our last report card, at the graduate level position, women outnumber men. Hmm. By the time they hit the assistant, and move from the assistant coach position to the associate head, associate head coach or head coach, men outnumber women. And so we are calling that assistant position uh, the critical zone of attrition. Hmm. And we really need to develop programming and policy and support for women. And we looked at the age range too. It's from about age 26 to 32 is that critical zone of attrition for women dropping out of coaching. You know, that's interesting that you talk about that age range. It also strikes me as kind of a, a tenuous time for women who are trying to uh, move from maybe a lecturer to an assistant professor position or from an assistant professor position to an associate professor position. It's a, it's a time that there's a lot going on in many women's lives. Uh, they're establishing mm -hmm. family, perhaps starting to have kids or to trying to decide if they're willing to pick up and move. Has your study looked at any of those dynamics as well? We have looked at age by gender by children and the trend line is about the same. So at that assistant coach level, you're right. There are a lot of life decisions and transitions happening in, in that critical zone uh, for men and women, but for whatever, you know, for lots of reasons, the, the women with children, again, start trending downward. And a lot of the women in positions of power um, at the head coach, we know that you can have children and be a head coach. That's one of the false narratives is, oh, if you want to be a coach, you can't have kids. Well, that's not true. But what happens is that young women, I think, internalize that narrative um, and they might not see other women as often as they would like. And then they sort of think, well, I don't see other women in large numbers having a career and a family and coaching. Uh, and I've heard that you can't have a family and coaching. So I'm just going to drop out. 
So that's one, I think, reason why. Hmm, interesting. It's not the only reason, but it is a factor. Um, you know, I think my audience knows I spent 15 years as a, as a collegiate head coach. And, and one of the things that I see is, you know, when women are in leadership positions and they start to get um, overwhelmed by trying to maintain their work-life balance, if they have a male assistant coach on their staff, if they trust them, they will allow them to step in and help. But sometimes I think that relationship might get, um, what's the word, abused or perhaps just um, taken over by the dynamics in the relationship. Have you witnessed any of that in your research? Not specifically, but what we have done is in the report card, we've tracked the number of all female coaching staffs and head coaches, male head coaches and female head coaches that hire all women on their staff. Because I was just curious if that pipeline is leaking and we have a lot of grad assistants and assistants, then what is happening there? And how can we learn from head coaches who have a commitment to hiring and mentoring young women. And so we're actually right in the middle of collecting that data right now. We're interviewing men and women. And that's a project I'm doing with my doctoral student, Courtney Boucher and Dr. Lindsay Darvin at Cortland. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a very interesting topic to follow up on. Um, we're talking about this uh, gender gap, especially the gap from assistant coach to head coach. In 2021, it's remarkable to me that it is still noteworthy that a woman is hired to coach or support a men's team. We heard so much in the uh, Super Bowl about women coaching in the NFL and how great the NFL is at hiring all these women. You could probably count them you know, on two hands, maybe 10 across the whole league. That's, yeah. that's a nice gesture, but it's not a good start. Some of my friends uh, who are advocating for racial justice would say, well, how many black head coaches did they hire? There seems to be the same um, problem when you're transitioning, when you're a minority or you're a woman. Any thoughts about that dynamic there? Well, it's interesting because the media around the Super Bowl, my phone was ringing off the hook because they wanted to ask the question, well, you know, the NFL has these female coaches on both sides of, you know, the Buccaneers and the Chiefs and isn't this great and it's going to open the floodgates for women in football. And I said, well, I hope it does, but we'll see. But there is a lot of initiatives going on in the NFL right now that are trying to get more women in the pipeline to fill positions because, not because it's a publicity stunt, not because they're checking a box, but because there are a lot of qualified, talented women that would make great football coaches. And I think professional leagues are starting to realize that. And I'm hoping that college coaching staffs will follow suit. It's a little bit ironic to me that pro teams are sort of leading the way in hiring men's pro teams are hiring women, but there's really very few women coaching collegiate men. Yeah, that's really true. I think there was one woman who was coaching assistant coach at Dartmouth in football and mm -hmm. left Dartmouth to go to the NFL. And that, yeah. that was like, that was a real surprise to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so, there's a whole women's professional football league 
that are I got to interact with for our women in sport, uh, women in sport film festival for National Girls and Women's Sport Day out of the Boston Renegades, and that league there are over 40 teams across the country of women who play football. And some of these women are amazing athletes. Well, they're all amazing athletes, but some of them would make amazing coaches. Yeah. So the pipeline is there. It just has, they have to be given the opportunity. It's very interesting. Now, I've also noted that a couple of years ago, uh, Notre Dame, former Notre Dame women's basketball head coach Muffet McGraw stated that she would only hire women. She felt that was her obligation to grow that pipeline. And that too attracted a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Is that the strategy? Is that the way to go here? I think it's one strategy. And I think the fact that Coach McGraw said that and she got skewered in the media that she was you know, being discriminatory towards men. But if a male coach... And most male coaches do have an all-male coaching staff on the men's side. Nobody bats an eyelash. That's the norm. And so this idea that men are being reversely discriminated against is just not true because they coach 98% of men's teams and they coach 66% of women's teams. So based on our data over eight years, we looked at when the coach head coach position turns over, Right. well, 57% of all the head coach hires over the last eight years have been men. They're not, they're doing just fine. They're not being discriminated against. So I'm glad that coach McGraw said that because I think it is one strategy to empower, to mentor to have a succession planning to put women in positions of power like she did at Notre Dame and then, you know, was grooming Miel Ivy, who now is the head coach. Right. Who's a terrific head coach. Great. Um, One of the things that also people have commented on over the years is, you know, if a woman, a woman head coach is hired, this is particularly true in basketball, but I've seen it in other sports and over four or five years just doesn't quite cut it. How often do, does a second woman get an opportunity at that head coaching position, or do they sometimes revert and go back to a man, assuming that that's a more stable hire, more guarantees of success? Any research that you've seen in that area? Actually, another analysis we're doing with the report card is looking at more depth with that sample of coaches that have turned over over the last eight years, because now the data set is around 700 coaches. So we can really start doing some more nuanced analysis analysis of age, gender, um, do they have kids, who replaces who? Um, because the, I think the idea is that, well, if a woman fails, then all women coaches are horrible and we better go back to a man. But if a man fails or has a losing season, you know, nobody says, well, all male head coaches are, t- are bad. Right. So I think there's some gender bias happening there, but we are now starting to dig into that data set. And that's been one of the really cool things about this research is that we just started tracking women head coaches of women's teams. And over eight years, it's, generated new research questions and other lines of inquiry that we can answer with data. 
Oh, absolutely. Because we do need to get some answers on some of this. And you also not only track individual positions, but you track both institutions and conferences that seem to be trending either in a positive direction or a negative direction. For example, on the positive side, you noted that St. Joseph's University here in Philadelphia, Longwood University in Virginia, and Tennessee State in Tennessee each had 75% or higher a number of women in coaching staff positions. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on why these schools are performing so well? <clears throat> well, Karen, over the last eight years of doing this report card, I got that question all the time. Because athletic directors who saw the report were saying, well, you know, Dr. Lavoy, I really want to hire women, but I can't find them. And <laughs> I see your report card and these schools are getting A's. And so what are these athletic directors doing to hire all these women? And I said, well, I don't know, but I can find out. So we got funding from the NCAA Office of Inclusion to interview athletic directors at A and B schools. And we have that report on our website. And I think big picture is what I learned from them is they are intentionally creating a culture where women feel safe, valued, and supported. Mm. And so they're able to keep the women they have. And one AD said it best, happy coaches don't leave. And then because they have happy women in there, they're able to recruit more women because there's evidence that these women can be successful and feel supported. So it's this kind of idea that diversity begets diversity. The more women you have, the more women you're likely to recruit. Yeah, and they're gonna share with each other just like um, in recruits in, in college athletics works. You know, how, what's your experience like on this team? Are you, do you feel accepted? Do you feel embraced? Or do you feel like you're an outcast? I mean, I would think that coaches feel the same way. It's exactly the same. And if, if athletic directors would approach their hiring and creating their athletic department culture in that way, I think they would be better off than those yeah. who don't. That sounds like something definitely worth following. Of course, we had some conferences that were not doing so well. And your report calls out the Big 12, the MAC, which is the MAAC, and the WAC for yeah. underperforming in the area of hiring and retaining women coaches. Thoughts yeah. on why those conferences are performing so poorly? Yeah, and you know, I, I noticed you didn't call out the institutions that no, were- No, I that, just thought I'd take it holistically. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, um, for listeners, you can go on the report card and you can see the schools that get Fs. Um, and I can tell you that the schools that get Fs are fairly stable. They have been Fs and they haven't moved. And I get this question too, well, like why, why are these schools, why are these conferences, why do they have Fs? I honestly do not know the answer to that. That is another study that I would, that's in the queue. <laughs> I could probably guess that they don't have cultures where women feel safe, valued, support, and they don't see people like themselves. So if I'm a woman and I don't really see other women or very few, why would I want to go there? Yeah. I don't think I can be successful there. And some of it is pay. So some of these conferences like the MAC and the WAC, I think it's the coaches are, they, they can't make an honest living. So I think there's something about pay yeah. as well. Yeah. I agree with you on the culture thing. I know that uh, when I was coaching, if I didn't have the same opportunity to recruit the way the other coaches recruited 
or to travel the way the other coaches travel or to even host summer camps the way the other mm-hmm. coaches could offer. I would look at that going, well, I'm not sure you're giving me all the tools in my toolbox to be able to be successful. I think right. ADs have to think about that. Yeah. And you know, women, because they're, they're in the minority, if you're really good, you're getting recruited away to go to schools that will pay you more. And why wouldn't you do that? So um, yeah, I don't know for certain why there are some schools and conferences perform badly and get Fs, but um, I'd love to do that study to, to have some more concrete data and not just my, my guesses. <laughs> we are definitely building your to-do list here. Yes, um. <laughs> we are. It's long already, but I mean, it's always getting longer, I can tell you. <laughs> Um, and just as a side note, none of the conferences that you analyzed in your study performed above a C for no. head coaching in women. And my comment is, yikes, perhaps yeah. they should go on probation. Is there yes. any kind of, you know, po- uh, negative uh, reinforcement for this or other than just being named in the study? Well, I like to see the report card as a mechanism of accountability rather than shaming So it's like, look, this is where you are in comparison to your peer institutions and conferences. And if you care about that, there are ways that you can improve your percentage of women head coaches or women in your coaching staff. So um, the leading division one conference is the Ivy League. And I can tell you they're very proud of that because they trumpeted in social media. I've had many conversations with their commissioner and, you know, they're Robin Harris is really committed to um, keeping that grade and and getting better. Well, it starts from the top. That's what they always say. No matter if the organization values equity and diversity and inclusion, then everybody will inherently pick up those signals that that's important. That's right. And I do have to note, though, that the WAC, even though they're at the bottom, like their, their commissioner, Julie Rowe Latch, who's a colleague of mine, I've served on the We Coach board with her. She cares very deeply about this. You know, now that she's in charge and she's the commissioner, she is putting in place some initiatives to, to make change because it starts at the top. Right, right. So and we'll keep our eye on the whack. Keep her eye on the whack. And hopefully then her presidents who act as her board on that, on that co- the committee uh, understand that that's what she needs to be measured for that they have to prioritize that in her evaluation and not only her, but how are the ADs are doing in the conference because it's a collective effort. It is. And I know um, that conference commissioners, when they have their meetings with their presidents, those who care about this issue, put that report card in front of the presidents mm. and say, look, here's how we're doing. Right. And we can do better. And um, I love that our report card is being used in that way to educate. Yeah. Your report goes into so many different areas, but one of the things that I think is important to discuss is you discuss something called heteronormative behaviors in coaching biographies. For most people don't even know what a media guide is anymore. It used to be this hard copy thing that you'd get handed out every year and it was a recruiting tool. Now it's just on the web and it's a very interactive kind of experience to read through a media guide. But one of the things that you pointed out was the way the coaches wrote about their personal biography. That's a story in and of itself. And you pointed out what what forms a family, what makes a family, 
has been a topic in America's culture wars for quite some time. It is a topic within this topic. Mm -hmm. Why are media guides such, such fraught territory in athletics? Yeah, well, the media guide, the, the old media guide, and they're all digital now. Um, there used to be actual paper copies. Yes. I don't know if those exist anymore. But, you know, the online coaching biography is the public-facing calling card for coaches. It's an institutionally sanctioned piece of media. And it's written in conjunction with the coach and the SID and maybe the athletic director, um, you know, the gate, who are the gatekeepers of the information. And what we wanted to look at is the family narrative in the online coaching bio, because around 10 years ago, we looked at it. And out of all the coaches we looked at, there was about 3000 of them. We had two coaches who had a same sex partner family narrative in their bio. Two, two out of 3000. That's insane. And so we did it 10 years later with the Women in College Coaching Report Card, and we had around 20. So we had more, and there's been a lot of cultural shifts in that, in that 10 years. So that's federal legislation and changing cultural norms about LGBT families. But what it certainly shows us is that in many athletic departments, LGBT coaches do not feel safe to be their authentic selves in their coaching biography, to put a same-sex partner in the biography, which tells us that homophobia is alive and well in college athletics. Because, and there are very good reasons why coaches don't want to out themselves in their bios, negative recruiting, donors, fundraising, you, you, know, you name it. There's some real concerns there, but the real problem is homophobia. So we like to call that out in a very concrete way. Yeah, the, the, the idea, I just remember, you know, the images and it used to be in, in, in the hard copy media guides that, you know, the football coach would at the front have a two, three, maybe even a four page spread about his coaching career. Yep. But then you'd have a number of pictures. You'd have the coach by himself, the coach with his wife, the coach and the family and the, you know, the classic family Christmas portrait type of thing. Yep. Maybe the dog was in there. A lot you know, of dogs. Yep. Yeah. So I think that became the culture of sharing. This is me mm. and my family because we are a family. That's yes. how coaches build their teams. So if you can't be your, your own self, if you can't be your true self and the way you relate to the external public, because your team is going to learn who you are, Mm -hmm. They may internalize some of those issues as well. Any thoughts on that area? Well, it's interesting, Karen, because a graduate student of mine, this is another offshoot of the coaching report card, <laughs> is Sophie Glassford. And I just um, have a manuscript in press now where we interviewed the coaches who were out, were, did list a same-sex narrative in their coaching bio. And we interviewed them. How did you decide to do that? What have been the implications? What's been the impact? What's really interesting about that, um, that research is that they were all women. Hmm. Every single coach who was listed as same-sex partner were women, even though the majority of the head coaches are men. Interesting. 
So that's interesting in and of itself. But a lot of the women who listed their wives and their bios said, this is my family. I have kids. I'm not going to be silent. I will not be erased. I want to be a role model. And um, my administration is supportive of that. And if they weren't, I wouldn't be working there. So again, it goes back to the institutional culture of inclusion. Do these women feel safe and they're choosing to work at institutions that will support their family? And explain, explain to um, our listeners what the recruiting disadvantages are for being public about who you are and, and how that's used in the recruiting world. Well, unfortunately, there's a term called negative recruiting. And um, having been a head coach at an all-women's college, um, I ran into that a lot because other coaches would leverage the idea that um, either A, when I was at an all-women's college, they'd say, well, you know, you don't want to go to that all-women's college because there are probably a lot of lesbians there, right? Which is really derogatory and making a lot of assumptions. And guess what? There are lesbian athletes at all institutions, not just at all women's colleges. And then in the coaching realm, if a coach is a, a les gay or lesbian, then the, the opposing coaches could say, well, you know, you don't want to go play at that school for that coach because, you know, she's, uh, well, then they might say it explicitly. And because of homophobia, um, some families and some athletes may decide not to go to that, to play for that coach. Now, others to say, might say, great, it doesn't matter to me, or I actually want to play for a gay coach. So, but because homophobia is alive and well, coaches will use that as a, as a tool to dissuade athletes and their families away from playing for a gay coach. I think that's a really important, um, misinformation campaign to be aware of is if you're a senior leader on campus, because if you're wondering why your team isn't being successful, perhaps there's a reason for people to be saying what they're saying about the culture at your institution, that it's not a safe place for all to be there. It's only a safe place for some to be there. That's right. I think about this in relation to public versus private institutions, religious institutions, you know, where there's a, there's an expectation of a certain kind of religious behavior. And I think it's, I think institutions might be well served to try to embrace that dissonance that coaches who coach there can feel and mm -hmm. athletes who might seriously be interested in coming, but also may experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's getting really deep, but I was just thinking about that. Well, yeah, and there's a really cool initiative out of the NCAA Office of Inclusion where faith leaders at uh, institutions uh, where faith is central uh, talk to the LGBT leaders in sport and they're trying to, it's called common ground. Yeah. And it's a really interesting initiative because what they found is the common ground is the health and well-being of the athletes. And we're there to serve the athletes, even though they have very different beliefs about LGBT community, the common ground is let's create safe, inclusive spaces for our athletes. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at, at safeness and inclusiveness. You know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a great point. I'm glad you shared that. As we start to wind this up, like we talked in the beginning about the coaching pipeline. Mm -hmm. Have you identified anything? I know you're in your early stages of looking at this, 
But anything that leaving today, a senior administrator might ask or say, what are we doing to make sure that our, this assistant coach is doing so well, gets the next opportunity? What are we doing? Well, there's a lot of talk right now that in that critical zone of attrition at the assistant coach level, they need support. They need professional development. They need a mentor. They need a sponsor and a sponsor is someone who will leverage their power to help that young woman get to the next okay. state. Um, we need gender allies where women are being given the opportunity to get the kind of training that they need to take that next step. So, and they, they need resources. They need athletic directors to invest in them to help them be ready if that's the career trajectory they want to take. That's great. And finally, I cannot let you get away without talking about the founder of the Tucker Center for Girls and Women in Sports, Dorothy Tucker. Tell yeah. us about her and her remarkable vision. Dr. Dorothy Tucker was our benefactor over 28 years ago. She was a graduate of the University of Minnesota. She was the first, one of the first female deans in the Cal State system. And she wanted to do something nobody had ever done before. And so Mary Jo Kane, our, our founder, made a pitch. Uh, Dr. Tucker at the time was a trustee at the University of Minnesota and wanted to leave a legacy. And um, she liked the idea of starting the first and only research center that would take the academic study of girls and women seriously. So she gave an endowed gift and the Tucker Center was born. Again, a great idea if you wanna make visionary impact leadership, look for areas that can thrive with, with your attention and focus. Yeah. Nicole, thank you so much for your insight, for all your good work. It's incredibly important. I'm gonna to have to circle back with you to see how some of that to-do list is coming. <laughs> And uh, you know, just keep doing the good work. It's really important that people have actual research to rely on to, to make good judgments and good decisions. So thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me on, Karen. It's always a pleasure to uh, talk about our work that the Tucker team does. And I hope that some of the listeners will jump on our website and check out some of our materials. Sounds good, thank you. Okay, thanks, Karen.